Hi, my name is Kiefer. I'm a pianist and producer based in Los Angeles, California. I make a lot of music. Some of it is playing behind me right now. I've also collaborated with some other amazing artists, including Anderson Pack, Kate and Drake. This is my podcast. It's called Approachable Music. On this show, I interview artists that I admire to update my theory on what makes a great musician. We talk about the writing process, finding inspiration, making it in the music industry, and have some casual conversation as well. Today's episode is part two of my interview with LA bassist and producer Sam Wilkes. We had so much fun talking, it was too much to squeeze into just one episode. So be sure to check out part one if you haven't already. And here we go with part two. Please enjoy. Okay, cool. Yeah, Sam, thanks for coming back for a part two on this interview. Uh, It was great to be here. I was listening back to the first half. So many interesting things that uh, we were talking about. And I figured this would be a great opportunity for me to ask you a little more about some things that you mentioned. Okay, great. Uh, Towards the end, you were talking about uh, finishing mode. You just mentioned it just like offhand. There's a difference between starting mode and finishing mode. Yeah. And um, I was curious, what does finishing mode mean? Yeah, the way I describe it is like there's creation or creative mode, and there's finishing Mm. mode. Finishing mode for me is organizing, making decisions that don't necessarily need to be final, right? There's there's no rules. It's like, oh, once I'm, you know, I'm always willing to go back on things if right. if I feel it's right. But it's making kind of intense decisions and having things not in this kind of free space. It's a much more constricted space. Uh, mm. And it's very fun, though, because the record is being made. The record's being finished. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's a different headspace for me. Yeah. Pretty intensely. Yeah. Yeah. I um I love finishing mode. For me, I think it's more or less the same thing. Um, something that I do, I think I mentioned uh, last time, I'm really obsessed with deadlines, you know? Yes. Yeah, you and so that. something that I like to do is like, I'll do five bounces of a song. Yeah. Ooh. And each bounce, I'll go listen to it in the car and like drive around the block. Mm-hmm. So this usually, I'll, I'll, this will take like two or three hours. And so each time... I bounce the song, I put it on my phone, go in the car, listen to it in the car, drive around, because I want to listen to it on a different set of speakers. Crucial. Car is one of the best places to do so. Yep. Listen, take some mental notes while I'm in the car, maybe notice three, four things I need to change. Yep. Like, oh man, that shaker needs like to just cut out like one beat earlier than yep. where it was. I need to come up with a better transition going into that. Yeah. I need to, whatever. Come back to the computer, do those edits, back in the car, come up with more notes. Yep. I do this thing five times and then sometimes I'll even like maybe I'll do this like two days in a row or something and I'll know like at the end of the second day at the end of the fifth bounce on that day that's it if I can't you know what I mean yeah I'm not going past that yeah it's great I'm saying goodbye that's it limitations yeah that's amazing yeah I really like that you do that that's very cool I do something similarly but it's not as regimented or ritualistic as that but it involves the car as well you know where it's basically just I usually give myself a little bit of time after the final bounce, you know. I'm very meticulous in the studio, whether I'm working with Chris Sorum, who mixes, you know, all my stuff, or if right. I'm mixing on my own. You know, it's either I'm mixing or I mix with Chris. It's one or the other. And I usually will give myself some time, then I'll kind of send it to my phone, and then I'll allow myself to kind of just live, allow myself to live with it. And mm. I actually, instead of giving myself, okay, first first listen, I have all the notes. I'll allow myself to live with it for like a week Ooh. and kind of keep listening. Because I know that sometimes there are things that I'm attached to that are a little more janky, and I want to make sure that that's not demo-itis or from my, you know, from the mo- from the previous bounce. Mm. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I give myself a little bit more time. I'm a bit patient with it, I think. But ultimately, I know kind of quickly. But yeah, let it kind of breathe. For me, man, yeah. Like, mm. finishing mode, I felt like I should have stated this when we first started. But to me, finishing mode is making sure the session's organized and clean and is either ready for mixing or it's being mixed. Mm. 
But that's still kind of very creative. There's this other part of it that happens where it's mixes are done. Then it's making sure that if I'm doing it myself, all the bounces are done correctly. Starting and endings of songs are good. You know, signing off on all mixes, which for me can sometimes, you know, like I've gone back on stuff in mastering and then like, no, mm. like I actually have to go back and adjust one thing. Or I've done sometimes four sets of revisions on mastering, you know, right. where it's yeah. just like, no, it's being made worse, you know, but, right. the, but my master isn't where it needs to be either. There has to be this thing. And um, yeah, it it can be kind of a painful experience for me, but it's always yeah. so worth it. Um but yeah, I'm tr- I've I've been trying to kind of talk about process, like adjust my process a little bit more with it, and then after the mastering, then there's this whole other thing of album art and project management and all mm. this other thing, uh, <laughs> all these other things that, you know, can be a lot for me by myself to kind of handle, you know, and sometimes you know the label will help a lot, but I really have quite a strong vision and. I sometimes have trouble kind of handing certain things off. You know, mm. I like to, I know what, I know the way I want things to end up being. And so there can be, you know, there's this whole part of the process that is, you know, just very org- very administrative and, but c- combined with being creative and combined with making fine, you know, ultimately final decisions, which is very different than my writing and recording style, which is just, total freedom you know right and so yeah right that's you know that's something i tell a lot of students or just people who ask like it's such an important skill to have um as an artist um to yeah to know that part yeah it's a slightly different art form than music the art of recording the art of making records right yes it's a slightly different obviously it involves the art of music but it's even there's even more to it and you got to Got to know that part. Yes. It's so important. Know that and part. it's humbling, too. Right. Because, you know, you can go crazy. I've gone crazy during finishing processes, you know, <laughs> truthfully. Oh, my God, man. You know, <laughs> loss, complete loss of perspective. Totally. Truthfully. Totally. On every project I've ever done. Truthfully. Oh, wow. I've, I, I yeah. lose complete and total perspective. Except, you know, some of them actually I've moved so fast that I haven't been able to do that. But some... I take my time and taking the time one makes me feel like I put a lot of heart into it. And I think people can feel right. that. That's the goal that people can feel how much heart I've put into it. Right. But at the same time, what comes from that is like that heart stuff is combined with time and energy. And it can be a dangerous game because I can really lose perspective. Things can get overripe, you know. Exactly. And I yeah. and, and even though it's like great and it's I'm so I end up being so proud of it. There are these moments where doubt comes into the comes into view fear comes into view you know mm-hmm. all these anxiety all these different things right. you know um and it's getting through that is that's a part of finishing as well truthfully yeah. it's kind of dealing with all of the stuff that an artist has going on in their mind you know yeah. and going through it. and some people combat that from moving very quickly other people combat that through different strategies that they have or just sheer blind confidence so it doesn't affect them you know for me i'm a very sensitive person and you know very detail oriented and you know sometimes i have a natural proclivity towards the angst or you know or can you know have a strong sense of reality and be like wait is this exactly what i want it to be and the key thing is just ceaselessly moving forward and not Mm -hmm. letting that hold me back or stop me from finishing anything you know that is such a huge part of making records is not only having the audacity to start it, but having the audacity to finish it and to let myself go as crazy as I need to to make sure that I've left no stone unturned and then just get to the point where I'm ready to, you know, put it out into the world and mm. move on to the next, you know? Yeah. Man, it's wonderful. Dude, um, <laughs> speaking on. of which, um, let's talk about Leaving Records. Uh, Leaving Records is a label we've both been a part of 
Yes. The best. Yeah, I guess making the music that we make, which is you know, jazz adjacent, black American music, yeah. improvised music, it's really hard to find a place where that kind of music can thrive. I think if I think leaving records is one of those places where it's possible. Yeah, what's what's your experience been like, you know, being on on leaving? Man, it's been so wonderful. Um yeah. Leaving records to me is synonymous with Matthew David, obviously. Right. Um and working with Matthew uh is always such a joy. I feel so understood and feel like my creativity and vision and music are so respected mm -hmm. and so handled correctly. I also feel so fairly treated. Matthew is someone who is a family man, you know. Um, he has a pretty amazing family, his wife, Diva, and their child, Love. And um, Matthew runs his business in a similar way where there is this kind of familial dynamic and also this very honorable and loving way that he handles himself, both in a communicative uh, and kind of social professional way and also in like a hardcore business way too. He's, and that's something that's very important to me is like honorable, you know, being honorable. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a real sense of that I get from him. And that's, and that kind of, you know, fatherly loving mentality it just feels so great to have my music be released with someone who operates in that manner you totally. know yeah, it's man. pretty it's pretty special so yeah i mean it's so great and i love the concept of all genre being just this op being open to music you know um mm. that's it it's just about music you yeah. know and if matthew gets it then it's probably going to be able to come out on it, you know, come out on the label. <laughs> and that's so tight. Um, right. And yeah, you know, we share a simpatico as well of both of our first real loves in music being outcast. Oh, right. Um, yeah. You know, and so that's a really cool place that we both kind of come from. Um, and yeah, so working with leaving, yeah, it's, I, I love it. It's really, yeah. really amazing. Yeah, the thing I love about Matthew David, well, there's a lot of things I love about Matthew David, uh, but you just get the sense when you spend time with him day after day. It's just every time I'm talking to him, you can feel on the other side that he is trying his very best to be a great person every day. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? There's always a new strategy or thing that he's trying so that he can, you know, communicate better or that he can, you know, treat people Matthew's with more shedding. respect. Man, he's, he's shedding. shedding. Yeah. You know, he's always shedding always on how shedding. to be, be, you know, be a better person, you know, and be, yeah. uh, you know, a better artist and a better label uh, head and all these things. And I feel such a s insane amount of uh, connection and empathy towards that because that's exactly where I'm at too, right. you know. I feel totally. like you're in the same boat of just – how can I become a better version of myself? How can I, I continue I my path to mastery? You know? <laughs> I don't know if I do it as gracefully, but <laughs> trying. Um, we're all trying. We're all trying, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I uh, have a lot of respect for Matthew David. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy. And um, obviously, Leaving Records is a, an incredible uh, ecosystem that he has created. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I agree, um, man. So how many records have you put out with them then? There's... There's Two, Wilkes, there's, there's saxophone five. and bass, there's five. Five? Oh yeah. my god. Yeah, five records. Good lord. Yeah, there's music for saxophone and bass guitar, Wilkes, Live on the Green, oh, more songs, and then uh, one theme and subsequent improvisation. Right. Yeah. Killing. Wild. Dude, five records. How does it feel? Feels good. I mean, it feels you ever like. Think about it? You ever like, really think about it? Like, man, I have five albums. Does you know, it have more than that? Are there more? There's there's also Prattley. There's two Prattley oh albums. Oh my god, that's true. Um, oh damn. But yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Well, now so you know, there's just such a flow. But you know, we, we were talking about it last time. It's like my the process thing has opened up so much for me now. It feels like with records and music, it's just like it just feels like there's this you know riding a wave. You know, it's just so right. now it just I want and my goal for it is just to be this kind of thing that's just constant expression of my interest and me loving to play music and also you know chapters of my life essentially that's something i'm very interested in right now is i used to be incredibly autobiographic 
and based mm. on experience, feeling, stories in my compositional style, um, whether that would be instrumental music or, you know, l- lyric-based songs. Um, right. Like Joe, I always think about like Joe Zawinul, like Ndugu once told me like Joe Zawinul, like when Ndugu played on a Weather Report album called Tailspin It. And there's mm. a great tune on there called The Man in the Green Shirt. And I don't want to get this wrong, so I'm not going to go into full detail because I'm I'm not interested in, you right. know, uh, playing a game of telephone. But sure. Zawinul had an experience of some kind where he saw a man in a green shirt and it kind of, they were leaving somewhere I don't know where. Um, and there was just this experience where it, it summed something up for him. There was this feeling that he had based on the trip or just that this one image kind of maybe provided the synecdoche of the experience. I'm not mm. sure what, but Joe in the session essentially would ex- expressed what his sentiments and what the feeling was behind the music to everyone, you know? And I mm. thought it's such a beautiful way as a band leader, especially with instrumental music to kind of go about you know, the co- talking about the co- composition, whereas opposed mm. to talking about it theoretically, you're talking about it feeling-wise or ex- experientially. Right. Um, and that, to me, is so deep because music can kind of become this vehicle for our experiences, feelings, etc. That, to me, is so tight, and I've always been really into it. But there's another thing that I've kind of gotten into more recently, which is not only utilizing music for that, which is really like powerful and so important to me, but now also just like being present and recognizing that I love playing music. And Mm. I'm just like, I just kind of want to make something that I hear right now that's not based on anything except me being in this moment. Totally. You know, and balancing the two, you know, um, that's Mm. been a really good practice for me and has led to some results I'm quite into, you know, and that way it's, there doesn't necessarily need to be this heavy-handed quality of like, I have to have this experience, you know. I have to, you know, because that stuff will come right. through me living my life. Right. And I don't have to necessarily force that out. I can also just be present and create. And then there's also times where experience will happen and the music will just, con- you know, it will just come through. And right. I don't, you know, <laughs> yeah, that will happen, you know. Right. But so it's it's a good balancing act, I think, um, that I'm, I've just started getting more into and I, I, I like it. Yeah, I think I'm the same way. I think I used to be more autobiographical. And then at some point I was like, I don't think I have to do this all the time. But then also like, then becoming autobiographical again. And now I'm back to like normal. I think there's like waves, you know. Yes. Come into the studio sometimes wanting to do one thing. Sometimes want to do the other. But um, I think it's good to be aware of that too. I like some, because some people are like, everything has to mean something. And then, like, months will go by, and they're like, why do I have writer's block? And it's like, well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, maybe we're setting too many boundaries. I don't know. Well, it's whatever works for the individual. Whatever works for you. We, exactly. Totally. You know? Because, man, it's like sometimes you got to, you know, if that's if that's what feels best, if it's purely autobiographical, oh, my God, then do it. You know? Right. And it's like, or it's like, it's also, you know, I also like experimenting a little bit, too. Changing right. up a process it can be fun, you know? Right. Also, if we're talking about story, and if we just, like, relate this to literature for a second, an autobiography is just, like, a very, very specific type of storytelling. Well, that's the other thing. A very tiny slice of all the different ways you can tell a story. This was in my dream last night, weirdly Mm. enough, was, I forget who they were talking about, though. It wasn't even, no, it wasn't in my dream. It was because last night I was watching a, you know, um, storytellers. VH1 Storytellers of Steely Dan just popped up in my YouTube algorithm. And I just, like, put it on. And, um, yeah, and, like, that's a phenomenal band whose music really affects me. You know, Becker and Vagan's writing, I really love. And that's off lyrically entirely fictional. Mm. Entirely fiction. Mm. That's so tight. Radiohead's another great example. Tom York's got way deep into fiction writing, you know, non-autobiographical. Later on, I think it's from maybe at some point in their career, I, mean, I think it was maybe like from the Ben's on or maybe after they kind of switched into that lane. Maybe it was maybe it was even later than that. I'm not sure. But um, I loved hearing that, that he made that switch and that kind of allowed all these different doors to open up, you know. Mm. So cool.
wanted to ask you about your bass tone. My bass tone. And if that's something that it for you is also like influenced by other bass tones or wow, you know. Can you elaborate a little bit? Like what, I don't what do you know. mean by I bass guess, tone? Like just like 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 the sound I get when I play a nice, B bass. Nice thumpy tone. I don't I don't think of your tone as being like very subby. It's more maybe an older fashion tone, yeah, maybe sure. more like seventies sounding yeah. stuff. Well, I can tell you about some of my favorite bassists, and you know, I mean, because undoubtedly they have inspired me greatly. Um, right. My biggest influence on the bass is Ray Brown. Oh yeah. You know, um, big student of the jazz tradition for sure. And so people like Ray Brown, Jimmy Blanton, Paul Chambers, massive influences on me. Mm. Um, I also am obsessed with the. James Jamerson lineage. Right. So looking at bases like Jamerson and then going to Wilton Felder and Chuck Rainey. Right. So unbelievably important to me in my sound. That those three, in particular, Jamerson, Wilton Felder, and, and Chuck Rainey. Right. Unbelievably massive. But then there are other cats like Bernard Edwards, right. who's the bassist with Chic, amazing composer, producer, right. bassist. There are bass players like him, like Larry Graham, right. and like that's a whole other tree. And you get Lewis Johnson, who as well as you know. I mean, <laughs> I just, I just, there's been so much studying of of that, and I, I don't know if we brought this up. You know, I'm also a huge Paul McCartney fan. Right. Um, right. Phil Lesh, the bassist of the Grateful Dead, love Phil Lesh. Um, I mean, there's so many. Gordon Edwards uh, was right. a phenomenal session bassist. Uh, Willie Weeks, obviously. I look at him as part of that Jamerson kind of tree right. as well. Um, so then for your tone, are you kind of like uh, so, borrowing from these guys? Well, and then or? there's also Pino Palladino who comes Ooh, in from that tree as well. Course, so look, course, so Pino's you know, absolutely massive. I'd say as well, D'Angelo's left hand is another one that's really mm. important for you. I mean, that's, that's a thing that's like uh, – this like yeah, this thing. It's like D'Angelo's left hand is so important to me, and I yeah. think to this to the grand scheme of modern bass playing. As is, That's Dilla, true. as is Dilla. Uh, you know, whether it was him sampling Moog or I don't even know how he got some of his bass sounds. Truthfully, I've heard some people say different things, but I don't know if yeah. they're true or not. So I don't want to speak incorrectly. Um, but I know that Moog was a part of it, but maybe it was also you sampling bass sounds. But the way Dilla approached bass is obviously as well. Mm. I think Dilla, on any device he used, D's left hand, and then you have like Jamerson through Pino. I mean, right. that's unbelievably massive. Um, for me, I, I'm i just a student of it all. Like, I, I could just go on. Like one thing that Ndugu, you know, had me do was he'd write down, you know, made me write down a list of 50 bass players that I loved. Mm. Which is, well, it's like, it's a lot of, that's a lot of musicians, you know, mm. to, to know. But me being me, I'm like, okay, well, let's go. I'm going to write it down. So I do it. And he just go through and point, you know, play like him. Right. Play like him. And I have to be able to understand the way they held the instrument, where they played the instrument, what kind of instrument they played. I mean, one right. of the deepest things about bass, specifically playing a P bass, the P bass is like a fastball. You know, it can work in every kind of scenario, truthfully, if you have it set up in a certain way. And for me, <laughs> that's what I love about it. Because obviously, for me, my initial draw to a P bass was, and I actually started out on a J bass. I had mm. a Marcus Miller J bass. It was a very bright and beautiful bass, you know, right. but kind of a more, you know, I could get the Jocko thing out of it. I could get the Marcus thing out of it. I could kind of get a deeper thing, but it was a very bright sounding instrument. And I really, became attracted to the P bass because I was listening to so much Marvin Gaye, mm. um, you know, and I was listening to um, live in London Palladium 1976 where the bassist's name, I believe, is Gerald Brown. His last name is Brown. I'm forgetting his first name, but just a total genius. Um, and I wanted to sound like him and I wanted to sound like Chuck Rainey. I wanted to sound like Jamerson and right. all those cats. It's P bass. And I'm like, there's this certain kind of sound that I wanted. But what's so crazy about the P bass is it can do the Motown thing, but that's also the sound of punk rock, you know, mm. um, truthfully, you know. And you're running the wow. gamut here of every kind of musical style the P bass can really work in, you know, which is unbelievable. And so for me, I became very interested in 
being able, and also like Freddie Washington has another huge inspiration to me. Play, you know, Forget Me Nots by Patrice Russian is the perfect example. Freddie Washington is doing that all slap bass on a P bass, you know? Everyone always thinks about the J bass for slapping from Marcus to Prince. And, you know, I don't know if Lewis Johnson ever used one in the studio or not, but Larry Graham used a J bass. There you go. Right. Perfect. So it's like, but you can do the slap thing on the P too, and it's a totally, it's its own thing, you know? Mm. So it can really do everything, which I love. <laughs> so now getting to my tone specifically, one of the things that, and this is what I was going to say before, before I got this huge tangent, is that what's so cool, and this is on any bass, but specifically on the P bass, you have so much power in your hands. Where you put your right hand mm -hmm. on the instrument affects the sound. This is a, so when I was doing my city studies with Ndugu and it was like, okay, I'm going to do some Memphis stuff. Right. So, okay, we want the Stax sound, Stax Vault, and we want high records. Okay. So if <clears throat> I am wanting to play along to uh, an Al Green tune, for example, my right hand can't be in the same place it would be, let's say, if I was playing along to a Tower of Power song. Mm. You know, Rocco Bristia is a huge inspiration. Okay, Jocko, obviously, all of them. Um, so if I am, you know, and in Memphis, you have Donald Duck Dunn, and then you have, I believe it's Leroy Hodges playing bass. Hope I, ha hope I got the name right. Forgive me if I didn't. Um, the Cats in Memphis would play really close to the neck. And right. that is a very, and there's a lighter touch there, and you have a much more subbier sound. Basically, mm. the closer you are to the neck, the more low end you're going to get out of the instrument. Right. The closer you get to the bridge, the, the more tension and the more nasal the sound is going to get. Right. You think about Jocko. Jocko plays on a J bass, right, but right. he plays all the way back here. And so I remember <laughs> I would always just play in the middle. Right. And I remember playing with Ndu. We did Let's Stay Together. He goes, why is your hand? He goes, that's not the way they play in Memphis. And I was like, what? He's like, you got, and I realized that how much power is oh just my in my right hand just to figure out the tone of the sound that I'm trying That's to go so for. Dope. So all of a sudden I'm realizing that it's like, wow, there is so much power. And it's like, you know, thinking about as well, it's like, okay, now I know just from that, it's like, well, what does that sound like? What's the difference of playing a, you know, a G on the E string with my hand close to the neck versus playing it at the pickup versus in between the neck and the pickup and then ver and going closer to the bridge? What does that sound like? And me, me realizing like, oh, wow. I realized that if I want to just create beef and pure almost a sine wave low note, that that's what I Up can high, do. Yeah. And then if I'm playing kind of harder and I'm digging in, maybe that's where I kind of start to move Ooh. to the right. And if I'm doing more fast funk stuff, then maybe I go closer to the bridge because that allows for more clarity of the notes and more tension so I can dig in a little bit more. And then, I mean, that's all there. And then... The other thing about tone is also utilizing my left hand. It's like, and strings as well. Like, man, so many cats I know in LA love using flat wounds. And I so get it. That's the Motown thing. It's like Jamerson had flat wounds and they put foam underneath it. But that takes a P bass and turns it into one thing. Where like, mm. I want to be able to slap if I want to. I want to be able to go play punk if I want to. All in the same set. I love all styles. It's like, I can make my P bass with round wounds, sound like it has foam in the bridge and like it has flat wounds just by muting with my left hand. Some people do palm muting. I mute with my middle ring and pinky finger and I'll just play with my index holding down. And that creates a level of muting that makes it sound like a flat wound. It sounds so dead. And I knew it worked when Jack Stratton came up to me after a show I did once. He goes, bro, Flat wounds on the P, man. I love it. And I was like, rounds. He was like, what? He's like, you're Boom. not using too much. And I was like, okay. Boom. I was like, if he <laughs> thinks I'm using, and I'm like, that, I'm like, that, that's tight. I'm like, okay, Hell and yeah. I'm actually getting the sound I want. Hell you yeah. know? Exactly. Um, so it just, man, it's like so cool. Cause as well, the P bass is two knobs. It's a tone knob and a volume knob. And I keep right. both all the way up. And I'm just like, the power is completely in, in my hands. <sighs> and you know, there's a lot of patience that comes to that. Cause that's different than making sure that I'm crushing chord tones over any set of any set of harmony that's in front of me. That's different than making sure that all of my scales and arpeggios from the lowest note to the highest note are killing, you know? That's different. There's that's a very specific focus on how does an F sharp on the up high on the E string sound different than an F sharp on the D string. And right. things like that and knowing what sounds equal what to me sonically and what feelings it gives me. You know, and knowing where on the instrument I want to play and where my hands are going to be 
to kind of get the sound I want. So all of that's kind of coming into consideration and then ultimately I forget it and I'm just reacting because it's just colors and I'm just picking right. the colors as I exactly. see or hear them, you know, when I'm in the zone. But yeah, that's uh, that's a little tone talk. There you go. Damn, <laughs> dude. Again, once again, <laughs> once again, to all the kids out there, people who are, you know, maybe earlier in their development, this is what it looks like. <laughs> what it looks like, man. It almost reminded me, hearing you just now, almost reminded me of this video of Andre Segovia. Do you know which video I'm talking about? No. Already? Okay, so basically it's this video of him explaining um, just guitar tone and how he can manipulate the tone of his guitar. Wow. And he says it with like with an accent, so it sounds way cooler. But he's like, inside the guitar are all of the instruments of the orchestra, but in yeah. smaller sound size. That's how he describes it. Totally. He goes, it's as if you were to look at the sound of all these other instruments with the reverse side of binoculars. That's what he says. Yeah. Genius. So there's like a miniature version of woodwinds and and strings, like uh, yeah, not guitar strings, but violin yeah, or. Or string section strings, of the orchestra. Yeah. Brass, and then he plays all the... I'm just going to show you right now. Yeah, this, I mean... Dude, this video is I love is when people refer to thing. the piano or the guitar in that way, you know? Right. But and it but it, it reminded me of that because you were explaining how in, like, inside of the P-Bass, you have all the styles of music. You can do anything. Yeah. Any sound that you need. And theoretically, you know, you, know, you do... I mean, that thing, there is, you are limited, you know? But you do, on the bass, you do have essentially up to, like, I don't know tenor instruments, maybe even just baritone, you know? But still, mm. you have, a, mm. you can play harmony on the bass, and that's something oh, I'm yeah. very obsessed with. <laughs> Playing an F sharp on the D string as the same technical note, playing mm -hmm. it on the D string versus the A string versus the E string, it's going to sound different. It right. sounds different, and it's knowing when to use each of those different sounds, when it works, <laughs> when it feels best, you know? What kind of music you're playing, you know? Totally. It's, yeah, it's really... Uh, yeah, and it's endless too. But yeah, that's a that kind of awareness, man, was was a real, real game changer for me. And honestly, it, it made me realize how important it is mastering the fretboard. So there's no part of the fretboard that made me nervous or made me feel like I didn't know where I was. Mm -hmm. You know, that every part of it was a place that I could play music, and I was excited about to play there. You know, right. and knew the sound that I could get from that part of the instrument. Boom. You know, super tight. Hell yeah. Yeah. This has been a masterclass on tone from uh, from Sam Wilkes. There you go. On bass tone. That's that's great. So I also wanted to ask you about, um, you know, in, in the again, in the first part of the interview, we were also talking about uh, how I like to think of you as a process genius. This is the term so that I so sweet. just that just pops in my head when I you know hear you talk about all these different things. And it seems like one of the reasons why you love processes, correct me if I'm wrong, is to also alleviate the stress of whatever it is you're working on, right? If you have, I think uh, one of the things we talked about was um, learning a tune. Yes. The process of learning tunes is so sick, specifically. Yeah, sure. And I remember one of the reasons why that process was so interesting to me was because it alleviates the stress of tackling it, right? If you have 15 tunes to learn, that's really stressful for a lot of people. Yeah. For me, that would be really stressful. Anyway, what I'm trying to get at, this is the real question here. It's related to a Kenny Werner quote, which I love. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, Kenny Werner says, it's not that we're lazy, it's that we're overwhelmed. Yes. <laughs> That's that so beautiful. We, yeah, we just yeah. overwhelm ourselves with, you know. The infinite. The infinite. Yeah. Instead of steps. Yes. Is that a big aspect of process creating for you? And uh, does that, yeah, how do you, does that help you deal with stress, I guess? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that. The process was born out of necessity mm. and from learning experience, too. You know, I've been put into quite a few trial by fire situations of great bass player got tonsillitis on tour. I have a day and a half to learn the show. Go in. You know, that happened really early on. I'm Oof. like, well, and that was like the start of like me, like having Damn. to learn a lot of tunes. Also, I played in a lot of wedding bands. After I stopped the pop thing, you know, and I had to figure out how to make a living, you know, right. I played in a bunch of wedding bands. And, you know, there were a lot of charts, but that was another thing where I was like, okay, well, I'm getting paid to learn music. I want to, you know, really nail it, you know? Right. And it's a great opportunity to learn some of the best songs, ever, pop songs ever, you know? Right. 
then comparing that to playing unbelievably challenging music composed by Lewis Cole and Genevieve Artadi or an amazing, this amazing Japanese composer named Ai Kuwabara mm. and learning their music, which is so demanding. Um, or Jacob Collier is another great example. Like, man, I was like, I got to get this together. And I would be put in recording sessions and I would have these consistent failures not as much in live, but in recording sessions where I would lose the form on something, mm. you know? These were mistakes that kept on happening. And, you know, as we talked about, it's like, well, I'm welcoming that mistake and I'm going to, that's not going to happen again. Sometimes, though, it was this thing. I was like, okay, I need to figure out how I'm thinking about things. And that's like, I relate it back to my view of understanding like how to, how to sight read, where it's like, well, how am I thinking about this? It's like, I have to decide on something. And it's like, for me, it's like, first, sight reading, you have to be able, before you get to notes, you have to read rhythm. You have right. to know rhythm. You know, if you're reading sight, if you're sight reading rhythm, you're you're kind of there already. Right, totally. You know? Um, so it's like, for me, I was like, okay, uh, in sight reading, I'm going to think about it in the Western way. One right. and then two and and three E and. Right, explain right? that. Exactly. I love that. So with song form, it's like, okay. I need to think about this in the correct way. And so there was, from musical directing, I was kind of, you know, I was really thinking about this in a deep way already. But man, like, to get to your question on, which is really like, does that help me from being overwhelmed? Of course, because you listen to the song, you either write down the lyrics, or if there's no lyrics, then you just write down the form, you know? Right. And immediately it's like, okay, cool. I already know exactly what's going on here. And I know that I can figure out an A section. And I can figure out a B section. Or I could just, you know what? Maybe it's a little weird. The harmony's weird. I can't hear it clearly. I'll take some time and I can figure out that first chord. Right. And it's precisely that. It stops it from being infinite. And it takes it into one thing at a time. All my favorite athletes look at their process that way. And all my favorite mm. musicians too, you know? Like the key thing with music in general is like, man, if something's complicated, what do you do? You slow it down so it's not complicated anymore. Right. You know? Right. Break it into smaller pieces. Break it into smaller pieces. It's like, man, if you're transcribing a Charlie Parker solo, and it's like you're not going to be able to get it maybe while it's at 200. Well, you know, maybe if you just take that first phrase and you slow it down or you just try to sing the first two notes of the bar, you could probably get that. If you don't have a slow totally. down, you know, and it's just like maybe try singing it. And, that you know, it's that thing. It's breaking it down into smaller pieces. And that creates a cessation to the feeling of overwhelmingness that can occur, right. you know? I remember one time when I was maybe, such a strange memory, I was maybe 11. This is way, way, way before I even knew any professional musicians yeah. personally. Yeah. It's kind of amazing to think that there was a time in our lives where like we, well, at least for me, I didn't know a single professional musician. Me neither. Yeah. I and know. they seemed like these mystical people out there. It's like, who are these people? Oh, where yeah. are they? Like, where are they? Yeah. Yeah. But I remember my friend's mother, she was talking about this, what was in her mind, like this amazing anecdote that she read in the newspaper mm -hmm. about uh, this classical concert pianist who is now very successful. And in this story, the pianist was asked how they managed to master the piano. And this, this pianist was something of a prodigy at a very young age, right? And so they, <laughs> they asked the pianist, how did you get so good so early? And he, his answer was, and I just remember my friend's mother explaining this to me, like it was like the most brilliant thing. Yeah. And she was like, you wouldn't believe what he said. What he said was his father started him on Bach and they would just do one measure every single day. Yeah. That was all they would do. And they just started at the age of five and just did one measure or half a measure every single day for like three years to, to get to that, you know, first level. And I was like, and now, like, and at the time, I was like, oh, that is interesting. And now as an adult, I'm like, of course. Of course. That's, like, the best that way you learning. can do it. That is That's learning. the best possible way, you know. Comprehension, man. It's so, it's so powerful. And, yeah, and it's, like, Small that's the pieces, thing. And this baby. is a Bill, my favorite Bill Evans quote. It's a great YouTube video for anyone who wants to watch it. It's called The Creative Process and Self-Teaching. Mm. And Bill Evans talks about not approximating the product. He has this 
interview with his brother, but he talks about the concept of not approximating the product. Mm. And essentially what he's referring to is like there's this goal that we want to be able to, you know, in the context of jazz, you want to just be able to blow over any tune and just blazing solo, pure virtuosity, and just, you know, crush anything, you know. Play bebop any, you know, at any tempo, just crush, you know. And for him, he's like, that's really beautiful, but you only get there through being able to first start in playing a simple melody with emotion and feeling, you know. Right. And then take, you know, and just taking things simply and being able to express oneself honestly and beautifully over simple music. And then being able to eventually get to the place where you're going into more complex forms and faster tempos and different right. styles and idioms, and etc. And that's the thing is like enjoying the process of truly playing with your heart and entire focus, simple music. You know, mm. even if that's being able to truly nail Mary Had a Little Lamb or something like that, you know, sure. which might sound so lame and so hackneyed. But it's like it's just being able to do something simply and enjoying that process and then moving forward as opposed to being mm. like, I have to be able to play Donnelly as quickly as I can steps. get there. Exactly. Right. And it's like because there's this whole part of the process where it's like, well, that stuff doesn't happen if you can't. About Donnelly, it's like that doesn't happen if you don't play the song that that's a contrafact to Indiana, you know, like can you just play the melody to that tune and can you arpeggiate mm. those changes, you know, and things like that right. and or just play music with just those chord tones, you know, and thinking about things where there's just this process where and it's that every part of it is worthy and amazing mm. and that it will, it makes that other stuff just happen naturally. But jumping to the finish line ultimately it just doesn't doesn't really work with music, you know. There's right. no shortcut, no and shortcut. The, the the way to <laughs> and the way to make that make that part of the process like enjoyable is to not approximate the product. And like, right. man, it's like I still feel like I'm on that journey, you know. Right. And I don't think it ever really ends, you know. I feel like I can express myself honestly, you know. Right. But I also know that man, I there's so much I want to be working on, and there's right. so much more that I feel like. Uh, you know, so much more to practice um, and to just to be able to express myself more fluidly, you know, and play everything I hear. And so, totally. yeah, it's just like that's that's the thing, I guess, you know, not approximating the product and just being like, no, knowing like, okay, well, I, one the, the, thing here's at a time. one thing at a time. That's it. Here's something I could work on, you know? Right. Exactly. Like, ah, <laughs> ah, that tripped me up. You know, that turnaround, man, I actually, I got scared of that turnaround. Like, I froze. I stopped being in the zone. Like, Maybe I should just just mm. should take some time and just try to play all the different ideas I have over that, and maybe play it in every inversion and in every part of the instrument. You know, play it on piano, right. sing. You know, and then just like once I work that out, you know, maybe that's not going to freak me out anymore. Maybe I'll be really excited when that part of the tune comes or something. You know, totally. I also take uh, I also hear stories about like Bonius Monk like taking a whole day to work on one tune. You know, did you ever hear stories like oh, that? Yeah. You know, or it's like, man, I like this, you know, heard Pat Metheny. Oh, dude, I got to hear some, um, I believe his name is Robin Kelly, the man who wrote his uh, biography, the the big tome, the the monk biography. And wow. he, he came to a masterclass at UCLA and he played like these recordings that you can't hear anywhere else. He's the, he got them from the monk estate. Yeah. Recordings of, of monk practicing. For like a solo piano record. Yeah. I can't remember for which record it was, but some. And dude, listening to him play every single phrase for, for the head, one at a time, over and over and over, and making sure that the micro timings were what they were. Wow. I was just like, man, there's so many people that think Monk is just kind of doing whatever. Mm. And they just, they are so wrong. Like, yes. and, and while I always believed that, Hearing that recording was like just amazing validation of that. Yes. Of that fact. I was like, dude, this is, cr- I cannot imagine obsessing over the micro timing of every single phrase on it. Like for a solo piano record, I'm just like, oh my God. The attention to detail is astounding. Attention to, and that's, yeah. and man, it's just like that, you know, I take heart in that. If like the masters, I look at like someone like Pat Metheny, who still, I, you know, just, Heard on you know the Quest of Supreme podcast talking about how mm. you know practicing is still such a huge part of his life, you know. Mm. And it's like, man, it's like I take heart in that where I'm like, cool. Then you know, 
if for those guys, if that was part of their lives that intensely, and for me, you know, that's something I've always, I've always felt like I need to keep doing. It's like, that makes me feel like, you know, that that's, you know, good. Like, okay, because right. they're still doing it, and I, you know, I certainly need to. And the fact that I want to, it makes me happy that I'm still interested in it, you know? And it's like, yeah, it's just like endless to try to just, the truth is, I think it's like, it's always working on the fundamentals for me. It's also like just trying to express all my ideas. And then obviously mm-hmm. I'm, I, I love music so much. I'm a fan. It's like, it's obviously always going to be things that different sounds that I want to try to express, whether that's uh, a tone thing or, you know, just a way, a, a kind of a way to perform something, or it's just different kind of harmony or melody that, you know, my ears are being open to through listening to other kinds of music, you know, mm. and just being able to express it all. Totally. And hopefully doing it like that. Just like, hear it out, you know. Yeah. That's the goal. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? That's yeah. the goal, <laughs> you know. Dude, I, um... There's, there's this book called Atomic Habits. Have you heard of this book? No. Bro, bro if you read this book, you're going to be... Because you already do this stuff, I think. But you could refine it to... That's so tight. I wonder just how far you would take it oh, if you I read this that. book. But uh, one of the things it explains, just it's, it's about developing habits and creating processes. And it says, if you want to develop a habit, you should make it make it obvious. In other words, make it so that you can't ignore it. So... Yeah. Uh, for instance, if you want to lift weights more, don't keep the weights in the attic. Exactly. Right? Have them visible so exactly. that you'll see them and you'll be thinking about it, right? On the flip side, if you have a bad habit, if you're trying to stop smoking cigarettes, don't have cigarettes out where you can see them. Exactly. Best case scenario, don't own them at all. Yeah. Right? This, this, the second thing he says is make it easy. Make a habit easy to participate in, a good habit, right? Yes. So I realized for shit. me... A habit that I'm, it was not quite easy enough to do was writing my daily to-do list. This, I realized this a little over a year ago. I have have a to-do list. The whiteboard is good because it's obvious. Yes. Not as easy. I think I could go a little easier. Wow. Actually, I do have the whiteboard as well. That's like a different thing. The daily to-do list, I need to have it on my nightstand. Yes. And the pencil has to be there too. Yes. When I go to bed. If I wake up in the morning... And I have the to-do list, but the pencil's somewhere else. I'm not going to do it. So you do it first thing when you wake up in the morning, right away. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. But then the other things too. I won't get out of bed. Like I will sleep in longer than I'm supposed to if I don't literally sip coffee in bed. Like, and I have a coffee maker right next to me. How easy is that? And I set it up the night before. I put the grounds and everything the night before, and I just sit there and really, I, I just wake up and I just press the button. That is I, so but tight. If the mug isn't there, right, and I gotta go all the way to the kitchen, I was like, well, then I just won't have coffee. Then. Exactly. It's gotta be easy. Yes. It's gotta be obvious. It's gotta be easy. So now, like, so my morning routine, I'm not even out of bed yet, baby. I got my to do list done. Yes. I have like a book of affirmations that I write down, stuff, whatever. Yes. All kinds of other things, mm. you know. And, but it's gotta be made easy. And so what I really love about so the, important. there's you can apply this to everything. You can yes. whatever habit it is you're trying to get better at, you gotta make it obvious, you gotta make it easy. There's other ones too, make it pleasurable, make it whatever. You yeah. can you know, doing part of doing the to-do list for me is I enjoy it now because I allow myself to do it in bed while I like sip coffee and watch TV. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's so oh, nice. That's so nice. That's my favorite way to start the day. I know. I have like 30 minutes every day where I'm just like watching whatever. Yeah. YouTube videos, and I'm sitting here. And I'm sipping coffee. I made it pleasurable. I made this thing. And I never missed. Too. Yeah. Because I'm having a blast. Exactly. Doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then um, and then same thing with, with making music. Sometimes what makes it pleasurable, do it with a friend. Work with your friends. Have Para come over all the time. I know. We work on it together. That's that's a pleasurable experience. We're having a good time. Collaboration, man. You know? Collaboration. Beautiful thing. Yeah. It so. makes things much easier for me as well. I wanted to talk about, I don't know if we talked about him enough last time. I think we mentioned him. But let's talk about Jacob Mann, dude. Let's have a Jacob Mann moment, um, oh, a Jacob gosh. Mann segment, if you will. You know, people who who know me well know that he's my favorite keyboardist. Mm. Um, just absolutely in love with his work. Honestly, me too, man. Um, yeah. What what superlatives come to mind when you when you think of uh, Jacob Mann? Oh man, 
Well, honestly, the first thing I think of is hilarious. I mean, just, yeah. you know, Jacob's really become one of my, you know, closest friends and collaborators. We've done so much together. But, man, I think of Jacob, I think of, yeah, fun, hilarious. But Jacob is one of the most prepared, diligent, hardworking, and soulful, mm. and funky, and adventurous, and original, uh, original. musicians that I know. And... uh as much of a brilliant improviser he is, uh, he is equally as brilliant of an ensemble and part writer. Uh, he understands song form and difference of sonics and choreography. And what I mean by choreography is changing of sounds. Mm. So, you know, when me and Jacob play oh, with yeah. Noah, for example, him and I both have a lot of choreography. And I call it choreography because they're literal steps. So, and they're in time. So, for like me... Like, we're playing a song, you know, like this song called All Time, you know? And it's mm. like, gen people go, it's like, three, four. I'm here for you for all time. And on all, two, and three, I go, three, and four, and. Right. I have to hit. Right, right, left, left. One, and, er, three, and four, and. There are oh, four oh, pedals oh, okay. I have to hit to get to my next sound. <laughs> it's choreography, for, yeah. For Jacob. It's he will have to do A bank, B bank, or sometimes so he'll right. have to hit one to two buttons, or they have to be in time, you know? Right. So you essentially have two eighth notes, you know, or two quarter notes right. to dot to change your sound immediately to get to the next section. And Jacob is so incredible. And so the level of diligence of knowing form and knowing what his sound, what the right, right sound is, dialing it in, you know, and it's dialed. It's so incredible. And, you know, on top of just being an amazing pianist, he's like, you know, one of my favorite composers and one of my, I think, the most original voice in big band arranging right Let's now go. as well, you know, in composition. Um, yeah, man. So, yeah, you know, we, so, and I've just done so much with him. I mean, we've, um, you know, we, we all the pop MD stuff that I did, Jacob was a part of in 2014, you know, and then him and I, I, you know, he started a little after I joined, he, Jacob started doing Nowhere. And started playing with Lewis's solo project as well and playing with Genevieve. And then we both did the Rufus Wainwright thing for a little bit. I'm not doing that anymore, but Jacob's still doing it. And we have a duo album that I'm finishing mixing oh. this week. Oh, that's the one you're doing? Yeah. So, Oh, my God. Uh, so that's really exciting. And, uh, you know, man, oh. yeah, it's just so. But, you know, Jacob, you know, the other thing <sighs> about Jacob, too, and it's him and my dear friend Brian Green as well. They're the two most fundamentally sound musicians that I've really ever come in mm -hmm. contact with that both revolve around the world of improvised music and then the world of sonics and then also the world of understanding how to play songs and doing so and being able to play in any style oh, and yeah. playing it like they've been doing it for 50 years, you know? And oh, they're yeah. both, you know, young men. And it's just like... Man, the level of, you know, the fundamental mastery as well of being able, their ears being just on fire, both mm. from a melodic and harmonic place. And then, you know, getting the right sounds. It's just so deep, you know. And they're both like this. But since we're talking about Jacob, you know, it's like, everything I'll say is like, you know, Jacob, man, he, J uh, Jacob, man. Jacob is like, <laughs> man, he is, uh, he's just like also just like an unbelievably phenomenal human being yeah and that's the way that all of really all my favorite musicians are you know is like the who they are as people um it's just uh you know a pretty incredible thing and i think his musicality and his soulfulness and his funkiness and all that you know i know how hard he's worked and you know we always try to out prepare each other on gigs you know he is he is <laughs> as prepared as possible and we always try to outdo each other i love that. and it's like but man, it's like, you know, that is at the core of all of it. It's just who he is as a person. Yeah. And um, that's like the Quincy Jones quote. It's like one of my favorite things is like, you know, your mute, his, his, his Q's teacher apparently says to him, it's like, you know, the level of your musicianship can be no more, no less than who you are as a human being, you totally. know? And that's, Jacob's is the perfect example of, you know, just an incredible human being yeah. and an incredible musician, you know? Totally. And, uh, Yes, what's so cool about music, I think, is that, like, not only is it about working on the craft and being able to, you know, just being able to express your ideas and 
under you know play changes, understand harmony, be able to play melody and be able to play in the pocket and swing and everything else, right? There's all these infinite qualities about music that we can work on and try to master, but it also requires us to be honest and to work on, you know, require, I'll speak for me, I feel like it requires me to work on myself and that mm. the more I work on myself as a person, the more in the zone I can be as a musician and the more honest I can be as a musician. And so when it's like, I think it's one of the greatest gifts about it is that I can, the better, the more work I put into myself and, you know, more honorably I try to live my life and, you know, the more myself uh, I am, I think the more the music can like reveal to me and the more, I think the depth of expression I can give as a composer or as an improviser or as an ensemble member, you know, it can just, uh, I think everything kind of blossom from there. And so it's Mm. so cool that, you know, it kind of, I feel like it requires of me not only to be practicing the craft, but also to just, you know, try to be the best version of myself, you know, that's that's infinite, you know. That's beautiful, man. Yeah, And I see that, you know, yeah, I think, you know, your integrity will yield those things, you know, your integrity, your patience, your ability to give yourself an honest evaluation of, of how you're doing, the way you treat others, etc. Like all those qualities will yield musicianship. But at the end of the day, you should do it for musicianship's sake. You should do it for <laughs> just being a, a good person. You know? Exactly. Anyway, I think Jacob Mann is a, a paramount example of that. I concur. Uh, you know? one day of just like I wanted there to be another keyboardist on this gig Jacob Mann and he, he was the first person I thought of in my mind and then I had this thought which is just based on weird rules that mm. I don't know who made them up they're just like oh I can't have him be on my gig quite frankly I think he's a better keyboardist than I am <laughs> and then I was like wait a minute no fuck that that's not how it works that's not how music works that's, that's ego talking that's yeah and that's not how that's not how this goes yeah and I should just ask him. Stevie, just, Stevie had Herbie him. on as, you know, and Greg mm-hmm. Gillingames is in the room too, I believe, for songs in the key of life, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Okay, yeah, that's true. Now, I'm not, I wouldn't compare myself to Stevie Wonder, but that's, okay, anyway, but, uh. <laughs> but he's pretty good, you know what I mean? Like, you know, okay, master, you know. But so. anyway, but yeah, so I was like, you know what? I should just ask, just ask. And his answer was just like, oh yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Of course it was. Yeah, said, oh yeah, that'd be so fun. Oh, yeah. And uh, we had an amazing time. I learned so much uh, playing with him, and he's just my favorite dude. One of the things, one of my favorite things about him, and this is why I think he's one of the greats, living greats. Think about this. How good of a musician do you have to be to have the technique, to have the knowledge, to have the sound and the funkiness and everything that he's got, and you can be funny with your instrument? this This is the thing. This is hilarious. You have you have so much depth of expression that you can be funny. You can be comedic, exactly. All the time. All the time. Like, and and. I mean, that's the and sensitive. Pick up a greater example, exactly. And play beautifully. He's not afraid to be beautiful. Play beautifully. He's not not afraid to be to to be funny. I know that's the thing. Crush too. Exactly. Funny. Yes. Like on a dime. Often. On the same song. On the same song. It doesn't the same matter. Sentence. Yeah, I know. yeah, like the the character of the rest of the rhythm section can be whatever what it is, and he can give you all of that on top of it. That's why he's the best. I think there's only like the other guy who I think can do that is Jake Sherman. He also has a, a way. He knows how to be funny on piano. You know, Gendel is also quite funny. Gendel can do that too. Gendel, Lewis too. Lewis can do that. Lewis, Lewis can do that. Very funny. I think as you well. can do that actually. Oh, sweet. But it's still a sh- it's a short list, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think Pinson does that, but it's, but it's still. I mean, these are these are phenomenal musicians. You have to yes mention to humor is humor is actually I think a really important to be funny. Bro? Well, this is the funniest thing about Jacob the Mind Record is that to me it's the funniest thing I've ever made. Jacob, it's the most serious thing he's ever made. You know which, which one? The our duo record that you're about to put out. Good lord, I need that. Yeah, man, um, you're deep. You're just like really deeply about it. And uh, I'm really inspired by that. Oh, man. And, um, I feel like so mutual, Kiefer. Dude, yeah. 
uh, Sam Wilkes, thank you so much for coming on to uh, our humble little podcast. Thank you for having me, Kiefer. Yeah, man. And uh, let's do it again, again, some other time. Please. (laughs) Dylan. Yes, bro. That's a good, that's a good, another hour ten. Yeah. That's all we have for today. Thanks so much for listening. Approachable Music is recorded at Cosmic Zoo, engineered by Daddy Kev, and it's produced and edited by Christian Kuntz. My name is Kiefer, and as always, be encouraged and encourage others. Thank you.